0: And when you create that sense of acceptable impermanence, the flow of objects through time, the idea of holding on super tightly to a business model or an idea becomes a bit less (laughs) robust. The idea becomes a bit less robust.
1: The, The kind of indigenous wisdom of the forest is also really important, that we can learn from
2: the way the forest grows. Um, So that total rewiring ensures that we approach every single challenge, but also every single aspiration, dream for the future in a way that recognizes that the only way forward uh, for our collective futures is one where we are replenishing and, and regenerating all of our systems.
3: Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and we're in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. We have a special episode for you today. We have three guests and it will be more like a panel discussion than it will be a question answer format. Today's guests are Penny Hay, artist and educator, research fellow in the Center for Culture and Creative Industries, reader in creative teaching and learning, senior lecturer in arts education at Bath Spa University, and also the director of research for House of Imagination. We have Andy Middleton, who for three years has been the Managing Director and Chief Exploration Officer at TYF Group, which is an organization that creates experiences that help people connect deeply to nature and purpose to trigger transformative shifts in life and at work. He's also a partner at Now Partners, and he is a man with many, many different versatilities and hats. And last but not least, we have Joanna Shakir, who is the Director of Design and Innovation at the RSA. She's a life-centric designer with several hats, practitioner, entrepreneur, thought leader, and educator. I'm really excited about this uh, format, about this conversation, about where the ideas flow uh, here and how they bounce off one another, how we've created, hopefully, an open space and a safe space to tackle questions of imagination and the crisis. We are looking at the many different crises as being so interrelated that there are one crisis. Check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.design. Again, that's www.coconut-thinking.design. And in the meantime, I will leave space for this very special episode. Well, I am so incredibly thankful and grateful to have three wonderful guests on the show. We have Penny Hay, Andy Middleton, and Joe Choukherr. And we're going to hear, talk about, have a conversation rather than the more uh, typical coconut thinking podcast, which is question and answer. We're gonna have a conversation around the climate crisis and around the importance of bringing imagination, the arts into the way we respond about the climate crisis, about the biodiversity crisis. However, before we do so, maybe we'll give a little bit of time for our guests to introduce themselves. So I will go with who is on the top left of my screen uh, which is about as random as it goes but i like it and penny uh, just give us a little bit of an intro of, of who you are and what story do you want to tell
1: hi everyone yes hello i'm penny hay i'm a reader in creative teaching and learning and research fellow at bass university and director of research for a charity that used to be called five by five and now we're called house of imagination in memory of the wonderful second robinson So the story I want to tell is the story of collective imagination in the forest of imagination. Uh, So more on that later.
3: Andy?
0: Yeah, hello. Great to be here. My name's Andy Middleton. I'm the Chief Exploration Officer of an organisation called the TYF Group in St David's on the west coast of Wales. And we're experiential learning designers, connectors, and advisory people. And the story I want to tell is of untapped possibility. Have this real sense that there is so much latent desire and energy to make change. And what gives me greatest hope is the fact we haven't even started to connect the right people yet.
3: And Jo, who are you and what story do you wanna tell?
2: Hi Ben, uh, I'm Joanna Shoukner and I'm uh, the Director of Design and Innovation at the RSA. We're a unique global network of change makers enabling people, places and the planet to flourish. Um, And um, my role is about um, bringing uh, different sort of innovation, creativity, design approaches, to radically transform our systems to be more uh, regenerative. So I do that through our impact programs at the RSA, as well as through the work of our global fellowship. And the story I want to tell today is um, the Design for Life story, which is uh, the RSA's mission uh, that I've been working on for about a year. And it's a mission to unlock everyone's potential to transition towards a world that's more resilient, rebalanced and regenerative.
3: So the words that are coming up here are collective imaginations, untapped possibilities, designing for life, bringing in regeneration. Let's, let's start by signposting this a little bit. Uh, I, I have a big question that, that I'm going to ask in a minute, but I'd, I'd just like to talk a little bit about what the RSA's view, what your views of regeneration are. I know on the RSA website, there's a little bit saying that it's, I don't want to say a new phase of new development because that sounds really linear, but perhaps a new uh, way of thinking, a new lens what are the differences between regeneration and sustainability joe
2: so um so our design for life story and mission um starts from an acknowledgement that the world that we currently live in is fragile it's unbalanced and it's degenerative um and that is um largely due to the fact that for at least half a century We've been treating our economic, social, and environmental crises and challenges as if they were separate, um, and that we have been working to address them of these uh, crises entirely separately. So you can see that in the structure of our institutions, for example, you could see that in different social change programs across different think tanks, where you often have sort of a set program looking at You know, environmentalism separately to maybe early years and the the health and well being of early years to education, etc. And we we believe that we need a radical shift to recognize that actually our economic systems are only viable within the construct of a healthy society, and a healthy society is only plausible within the construct of a healthier environment. Um, So that total rewiring ensures that we approach every single challenge, but also every single aspiration, dream for the future, in a way that recognizes that the only way forward uh, for our collective futures is one where we are replenishing and, and regenerating all of our systems and we sort of represent that in a nested way so the economy is sitting at the heart of society and society at the heart of the wider ecology so the transition from sustainability i suppose to regeneration is that We believe we need to go further than doing less harm um, or doing uh, less bad to doing more good. And um, every single intervention, every single organization, business, um, our educational curriculums all need to be designed with the intention of regenerating all of our nested capitals from our natural capital to social and human capital um, to financial capital.
3: The big question around which we're gathered is, what would it take for us to respond to the planetary crisis with our collective imagination or imaginations? And as you mentioned, we tend to see these crises as separate, but maybe the word crisis should have a capital C, maybe it should just sit there, maybe we should sit there with the weight of the word crisis. I'll, I'll leave it open to, uh, to perhaps um, to, to more of a dialogue and an exchange. I'll, I'll ask Andy, to, to start us off, how, how would you think about this, this integration of the crises into a crisis that we can no longer pluralize crises and it is one crisis? How, how does that sit with you?
0: I think you're absolutely right. We need to think differently about these crises. So I sat for six years on the board of an organization called Natural Resources Wales, which is our country's regulator, conservation organization, and forestry organization. And it was it was really unsettling to realize that full compliance with every single piece of environmental legislation by every business in the country just guarantees the slow decline and death of nature. Because there's no connection between environmental regulation and business success or the, the long term success of business and communities. And I think the the tough thing is that we've got to get our heads around is how to think differently around certainty. And governance, because it's only possible for in our current schemes of governance to measure things if you silo them down to small chunks. And of course, it's in 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 the siloing stuff down into small chunks so that they're measurable, that you lose the value and the sight of that kind of systemic change. So for me, we have a we have a really big challenge to work out how do we get to value and measure progress in uncertainty in a way that assures us that that the proper leadership and you know, deployment of funds and resources is happening, but in a way that's radically different to what we're doing now. And that's the, as true in health as it is environment, as it is in nature. And it's it is the opposite of the way that we've been taught. And I think, you know, Penny knows all too well about the perils of teaching people in these narrow silos.
1: Yes. I think that's my cue, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so we've had some very deep and concerning conversations recently but also over the last few years about how we need to respond to an education system that isn't fit for our children young people it needs to be more regenerative it needs to prioritize imagination nature and well-being particularly for future generations the statistics of mental health in um, particularly young people um, are shocking and so um, it's for me as an academic, an artist, an educator, whatever I am at the bus stop on that day. You know, it's never been more urgent, and I think that one of the things that we can to do together is to share our collective imagination around this, and that's what Forest of Imagination is doing. We, we're, I can't really believe this, but we're in our tenth year now, and increasingly. Um, the forest is growing. We're working across um, now an in international context, even though we're based in Bath. Forest of Imagination was co-founded with the wonderful um, creative genius Andrew Grant, who designed the Super Trees in Singapore. And together, what we do alongside the community, so working with local schools, young people, families, our students at the university, local creative and cultural industries, we co-design forest of imagination each year we take over a familiar space and we reimagine it we invite the community to come into the space and have a conversation about the importance of our imagination and creativity but especially our connectedness to nature and that we are nature we are the forest i was thinking about um the work that you know particularly andy and joe are doing around you know how we use different kinds of language to then explain or to share what we're trying to do together. And there was a lovely quote I found from Andrew Grant, which he said in the beginning of Forest of Imagination, he said, We need to rewild ourselves before we can rewild the planet. We need to create places and cities that inspire and feed the future creativity of our children. Forest is the home of imagination, imagination is everyone. And I think if we can all be invited to take that responsibility to co-design, to imagine more hopeful futures, to borrow a phrase, I think it's absolutely vital.
0: When something, Penny, I'd love to hear more about, particularly from you know from jo- Joanna and your work, is around how do you see our relationship with fear turning up in the way that in the way that people respond to these kind of challenges? Because I guess it it, it feels that. One of the reasons we're so unprepared to let go of our little fiefdoms is because we're scared of those unknown, unknown, unknowable futures. And one of the, it seems that one of the big challenges around stepping into that uncertainty is not recognizing the reason we're not prepared to do it is because we're scared. And for me, there's a key piece around helping people recognize where fear actually comes from and what it, would st- what it would look like to turn up with fearless curiosity and are able to ask those questions. So the work that we've been doing with North Star Transition, for instance, starts with creating safe space for people to hear each other's voices in a non-critical, just listening kind of way, to hear the stories that are present and from that, not try to reach agreed goals or agreed outcomes, but aligned goals and purposes. So they never, they're never try to get this perfect fit, but a shift in the general direction. I mean, Joanna, your work at the RSA have you have you explored that kind of the mindset I guess that comes with this better future, the design for life piece in relation to fear, confidence, and kind of around collaboration. I'd love to hear what you've been doing there.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, if we look at um, something that I, I keep coming back to is um, we know from the work of psychologist Thomas uh, Sunderdorf um, that there are two defining qualities that basically differentiate us as humans from other animals. Also, although, considering you know we are nature as well, and we are um, we are we are uh, a, a, an animal species, but the, these two def- defining qualities are our ability to undertake open ended imagination acts or acts of imagination. Um, so that's the first. And the second is this sort of drive of social animals to link our minds together to generate collective imagination or intelligence. And in the context of some of the crisis, you know, the crisis that we are experiencing, this is the one of the very few hope, hopeful capacities that we have as humans to move us towards that evolutionary potential to move beyond uh, the current crisis and to totally reimagining what our um, what our systems, what our lives could look like in the future, so we talk about um, a paradigm shift at the RSA, and we talk about inviting um, a different mindset into this sort of next leap, next evolutionary um, leap, as you mentioned, um, Andy, and and that is made up of basically six different perspectives that we invite. Um, Everyone to bring into their work. The first is systemic, and we touched on that already. Understanding that the interdependence across our living systems, um, that every sort of reaction has has a has a every action has a reaction, um, and that we need to intentionally really understand the complexity of our systems and understand how everything that we create could have um, a a regenerative impact across the wider systems. The second is sort of what I just mentioned in terms of our recognition of the human potential for imagination, Um, we are capable of um, creating radically different futures. We we can recognize that everything around us, all these issues and obstacles um, in terms of that sort of deficient thinking, not abundance thinking, is related to things that we have created as, as humans, as, as people. And all of that could be redesigned. All of that could be dismantled and reimagined. So starting from that sort of um, agency um, and that hopeful aspiration that the worlds that we can create are things that are in our hands to start to move towards right now is really important. Um, the third is adaptive thinking, um, leaning into um, the adaptive cycles of nature so ensuring that everything we're creating has a life is living and can continue to grow but also recognizing some that sometimes we need to release these things let them die because that creates the compost for the future things that we need to create so learning from um, nature and nature's adaptive cycles and how we design future systems Um, then there's the power of the collective the diversity of voices but also um, the connect also, the wisdom of nature. So, understanding how, for 3.8 billion years, you know, nature has been able to adapt and evolve, and and looking at how we can mirror some of these um, principles in our work. Um, the fifth is thinking long, long time. So, beyond the myopic um, time horizons of our contracts, of our electoral systems, of our governance structures, and thinking seven generations ahead. Thinking about how we can be stewards, um, and we can leave the planet. In a better, better place for the for the generations to come, and finally authenticity. Um, so, being authentic, recognizing our own individual capacities, the diversity of place, the diversity of different skills, um, different um, um, uh, superpowers within each one of us, and really starting from place, from context, from heritage at assets of every every place um, and every community um, to make leaps forward.
3: I, I love this idea of of, uh, of space, and I love this idea of creating space that's safe and where we can dialogue. The, the challenge is that sometimes we're speaking the same language in terms of English or French or whatever it might be, but we're speaking different languages, even if it is within French and English. And and, and part of that comes with the words that we use. Uh, I think about sustainability, that's a word that we really need to dig it into. Development's a word that we need to dig into. Goals is a word that we need to dig into. I think of the sustainable development goals, which if you really unpack them, for instance, three of them are not anthropocentric. And that yet, if you look at, for instance, life on earth, you look at that, nature is still used as a resource. The words use, value are, 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 are there for us to take. How do we work with the tension of meeting people where they are and not jolt them too much, otherwise you lose them, with at the same time getting to the fundamental issue that some of the things that we're talking about here are are vitally important we can't get sidetracked by what is better but not best
0: so one of, the, one of the things that um i've been doing and i think this is picking up on jana's point about listening listening to nature so you had a really interesting conversation about quality a few years back with denise de luca from the um who was one of my biomimicry consultants friends and and we were asking how did nature how would nature define quality if i had a quality control system what would be the headline principle and we said, well, it would, it, and this is to anthropomorphize, it. Said it would be it'd be perfect response to circumstance. You know, small trees on the hills, big trees in the valleys, whatever. And we said, well, what, what's the human system for measuring quality? And of course, it bears no relationship to response to circumstance. And it's all historical, it's all in the rear view mirror and so on. And we developed this framework um, asking, well, what might it look like if you responded with that full imagination, having taken on board what the context is. And it, and it releases a completely different set of questions and imagination, because the idea then, when you ask a question like, well, how many young people would you want to be as future ready as they could be when they left school, the answer would be, well, every single child. How many kids would you want to be able to cook or to, be feel, to feel safe and comfortable in nature? And it would be every child. And what happens, what we, our experience is that every time we set, we set those kind of wider frameworks for possibility, it opens up the, it up the space for collaboration, imagination, and so much more. And providing that we say strong when people go, yes, but we haven't got the money. Yes, we haven't got X, Y, Z. That for me is where real beauty gets released is when you ask that question, when we take into account the context, and know that we couldn't fail, what is it we'd set out to do? And I think that's the space that we need to hold as as imagineers and imagination specialists.
1: I love that framing. I think you know the invitation to think on behalf of nature, and this for me is you know one example in the forest of imagination is where we're opening up these spaces of possibility and really thinking with and alongside children young people about their place in nature not only to shine a light on the importance of um, global forests and um, you know the ecological emergency, but doing that in a way that is kind and compassionate that we're, we're showing that values underpin how and why we're learning rather than it being a kind of product-led delivered curriculum. So that invitation to think um, if you were a tree what would you be? if you were a, um, if you could plant a tree, Uh, to save the world, and that tree was you, what would you do? These kind of really beautiful, playful learning invitations that then, as Joe said, you know, prioritise agency, but also relationships and relationships with each other and nature. And I suppose that's what I'm thinking about in reimagining a different kind of education system that puts values at the heart, but also these habits of mind That um, I mean, this is why it's so brilliant to work alongside artists, because they they manifest that possibility of, you know, valuing uncertainty, imagining together, thinking about really big questions through the arts, but also creativity isn't just in the arts, it's in everything, it's a way of being in the world. So if we can invite children to have those conversations alongside us, um, I think that's, as I said, you know, never been more important.
0: Well, there's a lovely exercise, Penny. I I came across a couple of weeks back, and I have the, I try and make the most of the opportunity to go on walking meetings in nature because they're always more productive than, you know, particularly time on Zoom or Teams and stuff, but even face to face. And one of the meetings I had the pleasure of doing a couple of weeks back was with Bill Sharp, who's done the work on Free Horizons. And Bill had this beautiful framing around an exercise around sitting in a landscape where you can see the presence of both nature and the kind of adapted in you know, a human-shaped world and gently allow yourself to drift in and out of time to look at the tree and wonder, well, how long's the tree been there? And was there a tree there before that? And where did the soil come from that made the tree? And what was the weather that created the mineral loss and so on? So you allow yourself to, to think that through to say, well, what's, how long is the tree going to be there? and how long is the structure that the the ruined down the ruined cottage near where we were standing who was living there what will happen when it's gone and so on and when you create that sense of acceptable impermanence the flow of objects through time the idea of holding on super tightly to a business model or an idea becomes a bit less ro- <laughs> the the idea becomes a bit less robust and i think it's something that we can take people into nature nature teaches cycles of resources and possibilities and i think we can step from that to realize our business models and our ways of doing things need to be impermanent too
2: yeah i absolutely love that and i think there's strong resonance with some of the work that we're doing at rsa um so the way we've organized our work as i mentioned before rather than treating different issues as separate we've organized our work based on different cohorts of change agents um from not to five-year-olds, so very, very small children, to uh, school children, uh, to um, uh, enrolled learners of all ages, lifelong learning, um, to entrepreneurs, place leaders, business leaders, and systems conveners. And for the last six months or so, working with these different cohorts, we are learning that there are lots of different approaches to working with these different. um, And and, and it's really important to really, I think what you said, Ben, meeting people where they are, that bridging exercise between the different paradigms is absolutely necessary. Um, As Penny would know, and from lots of conversations we've had in the past, this is the easiest work to do with small children. Because that is, you know, that is how they're born. They're born curious and imaginative and creative and connected to nature. And I'm remembering the other day I picked up my um, six-year-old from school and he was telling me about how our job on this earth is to take care of all the things that are living on this earth. I was like, oh, that's interesting that you say that. Did you learn that at school? And he was like, no, I just know it. I was born knowing it and it it was it's just sort of incredible to recognize that we are born to be stewards of um, and connected to the wider ecosystems and a lot of that is unlearned or has been unlearned through through our various systems so i think i find that the the most difficult work of all is actually working with those who are upholding our current systems so systems leaders systems conveners um and i think what 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 works the best from what i've learned is recognizing that we are all human, that each of these individuals are human, and um, it's about investing in them, loving them um, as humans and looking at how I can, through my work and us through our work as the RSA, um, influence them to start to think and feel differently. And also recognizing that some are thinkers and some are feelers and how they negotiate this work. So for the thinkers, you probably need a bit of the evidence. You need to demonstrate that business is only viable for the long term. If, if you actually invest in your workforce, if you invest in the wider communities that your business serves, business is only viable if it's replenishing your you know supply chains, natural supply chains. And then for the feelers, recognizing that you know this sort of paradigm shift requires a change in who you are as an individual. Um, and then that would change your actions and your behaviors and how you're influencing you know the communities you're leading, the businesses you're leading, um, the wider um, policies that you're you're shaping.
1: I mean,
0: I'd love to hear from both Penny and, and you, Joanna, about what, what are your thoughts are on the extent to which it's useful to get employees up to a kind of functional level of literacy around climate and nature and resources. And it seems at the moment that there's an awful lot of people still out there who've never heard of the idea of a circular economy or don't know how serious ocean acidification is and so on. And I'd just love to hear your thoughts about you know what's happening in in your university around that you know are we are we really developing that capability i guess it's almost like the art equivalent of mark making you know getting to know the basic tools from which you can create better futures and it seems to me that we need to to, I think to your point joanna to help those leaders create the space for every employee to contribute usefully to those bigger discussions but yeah what's what's happening in your worlds around that
1: Well, maybe I'll start, Jo, and then hand back to you because, I mean, I'm really delighted to share that um, our university, so Balsborough University in the UK for listeners who are across the world, um, we have just turned our university into a social enterprise, so we won the gold mark status for social enterprise. Um, Outstanding, actually, and Forest of Imagination was one of the case studies and in that context, we're responding directly alongside the community. So that's in service to the community, really. So not just in terms of academics or students, but working um, in a in a creative ecosystem in the city of imagination, to borrow a phrase from um, Margaret Heffernan and Sue Rigby. And I think that coming back to what Joe said, you know, I think it is about regenerative um learning it is about regenerative education and we've just had the news that we um are taking forward a module for every undergraduate and postgraduate in sustainable education which is fantastic um, in sustainability and also thinking about how that permeates the the kind of green university agenda so um What I'm trying to do in my university role, but also working alongside the charity, is to ensure that everybody's invited to be part of that process. So we have live projects across the student groups, across the schools of study, so that this year, for instance, um, many of the students are working alongside the Forest of Imagination team to think about those real world issues and the language of sustainable education so that it's It's in everybody's kind of um, repertoire, if you like. And the last thing just to say is, you know, I'm also very um, inspired by the work that Nora Bateson's doing and thinking about her metaphor of um, you know everybody learns like a meadow everybody needs to learn like a meadow or a forest or an ocean everything's connected and in that place i mean you alluded to it earlier joe but i think the the kind of indigenous wisdom of the forest is also really important that we can learn from the way the forest grows um we have a wonderful student in Ecuador at the moment who's thinking about learning from the indigenous wisdom of the forest in Ecuador to think about what the forest is teaching us, working alongside Eduardo Kern, who wrote How um, Forests Think. So I think there are some bigger kind of messages, Andy, around the language of learning, the language of sustainable education, the language of regenerative um, education, and, you know, particular interests of mine. But jo, you're mm. you're going...
2: Thank you, Penny. I mean I'll maybe bridge that into uh, you know workforce employees and looking at capability uh, the capabilities of the future workforce, um, I Andy mentioned briefly. Um so we launched about four months ago um, a regenerative businesses inquiry, regenerative business capabilities inquiry, um, where we brought together about 50 businesses, um, business leaders um across the board. So some were chief execs, some were like HR directors, others were sustainability um, directors or innovation, ch- chief innovation officers, chief design officers. So really um, across um, a, a, across sort of business of different leaders across businesses to look at um, where they saw um, their workforce capability gaps were. Um, and to understand their appetite for a shift to being a more purposeful and regenerative business. Um, we did that alongside a review of existing capabilities uh, frameworks across sectors. So governmental, um, think tank, um, as well as um, ones that were developed by sort of sort of private sector organizations, um, learning providers. Um, and we are just about to p- uh, publish a green paper summarizing some of these findings and the key thing that we have um surfaced is that um predominantly a lot of businesses are sitting in what we would describe the individualistic horizon so this is the horizon where um workforce capabilities are about productivity efficiency um good collaboration skills so that people can bring diverse areas of expertise um to do a particular task well um and they're sort of um, capabilities that we've inherited from the industrial and post-industrial revolution, really. The next leap is human centricity, which we've seen growing um, in the last um, about 10 years, you know, customer centricity, putting people first. Um, and that's sort of really become much more central to a lot of businesses. What's really missing is that third leap, and there's only a small um, group of businesses who are operating in that space, and that's life-centricity, so from individualistic to human-centric to life-centric, and that is where um, businesses are really questioning how they sit and how they operate within the wider world and their role in service of the wider world, Um, and um, to bring that to life. Talking about language and bridging, we found that often when we're using sort of what we would describe as third horizon language in our conversations with with these businesses. They just don't understand what these words mean, and they would quickly disengage. So as a way of bridging, we've used Ken Robinson's eight C's, um, eight capabilities needed for creativity and imagination. So these are like collaboration, critical thinking, compassion, et cetera. We've used these eight C's, and we've demonstrated how they show up differently across each of these paradigms. How does creativity show up in an individualistic horizon? How does it show up in a human-centric how does it show up in a, in a life century? And that has been um, hugely revealing for some of the businesses we've been working with. And we're keen to look at what that next leap from inquiry to a coalition where the RSA can convene a lot of these businesses and work with them, support with inspirational materials and coaches from across our 30,000 um, fellowship. Um, and maybe even work with them through experiments within their businesses to support with some capability building journeys uh, for workforce. And we're talking the whole of workforce, so like purpose and ESGs and sustainability melting into the wider um, wider organisation, because that will change day-to-day decisions that um, employees are making in a way that will transform the kind of value that businesses are delivering to wider society.
0: And just picking up, Joe, on your on your life-centric piece there. One of the things that's been really interesting conversations we've been having here in Wales. So Wales is a lovely sized lab, a country-scale change, thinking it's only three and a bit million people. And there's a group of us asking the question: what does health look like and well-being look like in 25 years' time? So when you're when you're when, you know, when your son is 31 years old, kind of stuff, what does that what does that look like? And it's impossible to imagine a, a, a re- resilient future, a regenerative future, in which business plays a passive role in community health. So the idea we're, we're exploring: so, what would it look like if, if, as part of the procurement framework, for instance, you had to demonstrate you're improving the mental well and physical well-being of all of your employees in line with with shared shared aspirations? Because I think without that, the idea that we can slowly degenerate well-being, again, whilst trying to fix health against all of the, these challenges is incredibly hard. So I think the idea of a life-centric framework for business that includes nature and this, and as, and as Benjamin and uh, I and um, colleagues have had an amazing privilege of exploring, you know, what does it start to look like when you bring nature onto the school board and onto the college board as a voice? And of course, that'll be hugely different. For different organizations so for some it'll be a philosophical conversation about we are nature so whose voice we're bringing in whereas for others it's just to even think about nature being a criteria against which you'd even start to think about that i mean in terms of that indigenous framing and thinking or learning from nature penny how's that manifesting itself in in your work at bath at the moment Bath
1: well, I think it's interesting what you both just said because um, for instance, Joe, quickly just to pick up on your eight C's, obviously Sir Ken, you know, is a dear friend and hero <coughs> still, and obviously we're working with Ken's daughter Kate and trying to embed all of these processes. We've redesigned our postgraduate certificate for education so that all the Cs are um manifesting every day so you can see creativity and, and make those visible. But in terms of the kind of nature connection, I think it's then alongside local communities for every school to, or setting, university, gallery, museum, library, to think about how then uh, we are in a space of imagination to redesign alongside nature, with nature, and taking care of this beautiful planet that we live in, live on. So, um, Live in, live on, <laughs> which one? So I think it's I think it's really important that these um this kind of participation in this process is hopeful, and it is around hopeful action. and it's the it's the daily actions that you can take alongside the people that you work with, whether they're children or adults. And I proposed many times, and I really I'm saying it a lot. So I hope that it'll happen, but I would like every city and every nation to have a commissioner for imagination, nature, well-being, and future generations. I mean, Wales is leading light in this area, and I'm a big fan of Jane Davidson's work, as you know. But I think it's really important that we we've, we've got to start now. We can't wait. This urgency is kind of it's palpable and it seems
0: to me as well that one of the ways that that that's that's that best sorry one of the ways that that is best manifested is by taking real world experiences and real world challenges in into learning as often as we possibly can i think you know joe talking about your son at six having that certainty of what he's here to do shows that you know at, at probably four or five kids could in in school be starting to do their first level Noticing and logging of how's nature doing in your school ground? When's the blossom first coming out? When's the hawthorn first coming into flower? Thinking about the relationship between our clothes and the way we live and the way we move and the health of nature. And I think from a very, very young age, we can bring learning alive by taking real world experiences and challenges into the classroom so that I think well before the end of primary, kids could be, every kid in every school could be running the energy system for real and and starting to, and starting to build their, building. I guess for me, it's about building the muscle and confidence to shape this world, so that when they do enter the world of work and people say, "Oh, Joe, I really like your idea, but that'll never work here," we we have young people who've got the confidence to, and the care, I guess, to say, "I know why you'd think like that, but actually, it's different."
2: Well, Penny, um, Penny and I and a few other colleagues from uh, uh, the Eden Project um, and uh, 100 are working on a really interesting proposal. Um, it's called Playful Green Planet uh, with the ambition to create mini Edens in every neighbourhood, um, in every community, particularly sort of more brownfield urban areas um, where there's less access to nature where the the children can be sort of the creative directors designing some of these spaces and some of the curriculums around them, um, where the ambition is very much using creativity to reconnect people to social action and environmental action. Um, So we're very excited about that and sort of trying to sort of build as many relationships as possible and and gather some interest and rally some interest around that so we can can start to pilot something. But something I wanted to come back to that you mentioned, Andy, earlier around health and wellbeing and something that really frustrates me it's a big frustration of mine because i before the rsa i led in health for about 10 years um so i worked predominantly with the health sector um through through a design agency that i was running at the time and um, we continue to see health as sickness. We continue to see health as treating sickness, whereas health fundamentally is about improving the wider conditions, the wider ecosystem that enables humans to thrive. So if you look at sort of how government invests in health, 90 percent of investment goes into treating illness and then 10 percent goes into prevention, public health. Public Health England, public health, um, uh, you know, teams within local authorities, but actually, health is everyone's jobs because it's about employment and education and the wider environment, the health of the wider environment, it's about social capital, and um, it's likening likening it to like what Maggie, what Penny said around meadows. You know, if we imagine we are the flowers and the flowers are wilting, it's not the fault of the flowers. It's actually we need to look at the climate and the quality of the soil, etc. So really thinking about how we are part of this wider living system and that if we wanted to genuinely improve our own human health and so we can continue to steward the wider ecosystem in future generations, then we need to look at how we can ensure that our climates, the conditions within which we are living, are those that are those that are conducive and supportive of life. It's everyone's business.
0: I think that the idea that it's every—I mean—and when we say everyone, I mean literally everyone doing that—and and and Bill Bill Sharp's definition of a regenerative economy is one that's eliminated all negative externalities. And you know, most people that I've talked to in business haven't yet come across the idea of an externality, which is this uncosted, uncosted price of the good that's not on the tin when you buy it, and you know, they could be positive or negative. We used to run a hotel, 10 people got married as a consequence of meeting in our bar. We didn't, our beer wasn't more expensive because of that. But of course, on the downside, a huge proportion of the costs picked up by nature and future generations are what we'd call those negative externalities. And and here's framing for that as three generations to say, so let's imagine that by 2,100, you know, when my grandkids, my kids could still be alive that we've created that regenerative future. And I can imagine over three generations, line by line, working our way through all the materials and products and components that are currently compromising future generations in nature. But it does require that radically different shift in our th- and the scale of thinking, but also the number of people who need to be working together to do that. So I think there's huge possibilities once we free up our imagination.
1: Yeah, I'm just agreeing with you. I I think, yeah, imagine, um, I mean, Joe and I, I wasn't sure whether that was secret, Joe, or not. So, yeah, so the invitation to everybody to co-design a playful green planet. Imagine if every child, every young person um, had the opportunity to co-design a mini Eden or a mini forest of imagination, you know, thinking about how then they could tend to, their garden, their green place, um, co-design. I love Andrew Grant's phrase, he talks about co-curating the blue and green in the city, thinking about children's relationship to the fields and the forest, to the the river, to the beavers that we found recently in the Avon, etc. And I think coming back to your point earlier about, you know, how then we show what's possible. And if children, young people particularly, but everybody are working together in an intergenerational space where we are taking care and we are thinking about the kind of principles and values that underpin why we're doing what we're doing. I think that's where the education system can be really carefully reimagined to place agency and relationship at the heart, but also, as you said, real world learning. But I I think essentially it's about Young people's intrinsic motivation. You know, Joe, your son can identify with that purpose to think about being in nature and how important nature is in his life, in your lives as a family. But I think also, rather than having a, a curriculum that is delivered, then if it's his invitational, as I said earlier, then that sense of possibility for making a difference is really then genuine and authentic and it comes back to your design for life principles around imagination and systemic change but also around authenticity
0: and and i think penny picking picking up on your point around um that kind of the sense of possibility i think it's it's really important that we find better ways of sharing and exploring the boundaries of what's possible so in Wales' amazing Wellbeing Future Generations Act, there's a line in the Act that's, that places a requirement on public sector to maximise the contribution they make towards these seven wellbeing goals. And part of the problem is because people are under-resourced and whilst gov- in government or can only do things that are on budgets have really poor visibility of what's possible. So And the consequence of that means we get stuck in this kind of incremental change, which is progress, but actually not nothing like compared to what could be done today. And one of the businesses that we work with is an amazing supermarket in Southeast England called Hisbe. stands for How It Should Be, and they put 11 and a half times more benefit back into their community than the bigger box supermarkets do. And in Wales, if you did that for half of the stores, if you flip them back to impact-based supermarkets, it would be the same impact as an 8% increase in public expenditure for free. And I think so when we're, when we're as part of our learning and resourcing of young people, we need to find we need to find a better way of spreading knowledge about what's already working so that we we don't focus all of our effort on reinventing something that already exists, but working out how to adapt it and make it work for our communities. Mm,
2: something. That, yeah, I think that's something that um, this reminds me of, Angie, is. You know, something I'm, I keep talking about is this sort of intergenerational um, disinvestment in creativity and imagination. We have the innate capacity to do it, but we haven't been practicing that muscle for so long. Um, and I find what is really helpful in some of these collaborative settings is just to sort of throw some creativity, imagination, lateral thinking exercises at people that can help them reinforce some of the connections in their in their brains that they haven't been using for a very long time. Um, you know, and you know, we can talk about why that is through our you know formal educational systems and what kind of skills and capabilities are valued more than others, um, how we've been nudging and encouraging um learners to move in particular into particular domains over than others. But I think I think you know to being being able to invite in our potential for creativity, doing really simple things like you know, imagine if you had no money. Imagine if you had all the money in the world. Imagine if you could partner with anyone. Imagine if you just reverse this idea, turned it, or you multiply you created a multiplier effect. Some of Edward De Bono's tools, for example, or long-time horizons, Salt marches, the, the practice of creativity and the practice of imagination, and bring that into our everyday practices in terms of how we do business, how we do policy, how we do um social action work um environmental action work is is really necessary
1: Totally, there's a brilliant quote from so ken i'm going to because i found it um in so kate wrote finished after ken's death kate finished his book imagine if and it's exactly that it's optimizing the conditions for creativity using a kind of an organic farming metaphor to, so you're caring for the land rather than um, a kind of more of an industrial um, production line Um, and Ken says this imagine if the lesson we most need to learn is that there is more to life on earth than human beings and more to being human than self-interest our futures all depend on learning this lesson by heart and I think that's really beautiful uh, that kind of metaphor of the children looking after the garden
0: I think for me, Penny, as well, there's something around, you know, the magic that young children have about that connection to nature. So we we are born as part of nature. We are born into it and, and connected to it. And, and I think our job as educators is to make sure that we, we help kids keep it rather than have to rebuild it when they become teenagers. So somehow create that bridge from the magic that happens when kids are six, eight, ten years old and bridge it through to those. The next stages when they're starting to think about work and make sure that somehow we create the experiences that, that allow nature to still be present as kids are discovering, you know, relationships and as their bodies are changing and as their worlds are changing. How do we keep nature still part of that rather than dipping away as they as they go through those phases. So somehow in working out how we bridge this. Collectively, I think, is going to be really important.
3: And I think that might be the topic of our next conversation. Uh, I'm very conscious about the time, so I'd like to to thank all three of you for this wonderful conversation, these ideas. I think it also opens up those spaces for imagination, but it leaves us knowing that we have to do more or perhaps not do more, but certainly create spaces for more, as mentioned, those spaces of imagination, but also of response. Uh, Thank you, everyone. I really appreciate your time.
0: That That was lovely. Really nice.
1: Thank you, Benjamin. Let's let us <laughs> let our imagination free in the wilderness. Sure. Thanks,
3: everyone. <laughs> yeah. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this very special episode. Up next, next week, we have Joe Brewer. But in the meantime, check us out on www.coconut-thinking.design. Again, it's Benjamin Freud, and this is the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Subscribe, leave us five stars, and check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.design.